Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Armed and dangerous and still on the run. A suspect in the deadly Maine shooting is still at large. The White House now appealing to the newly elected House Speaker about gun laws. One of the most powerful storms to ever hit Mexico. At least 27 are dead after Hurricane Otis makes landfall, leaving a trail of devastation in its wake. Video of Israel's ground offensive, what Israel achieved during the overnight operation into the Gaza Strip, and how it responds to UN criticism. A heavy lift on day one of the job, newly elected Speaker Mike Johnson met with President Biden today to negotiate aid to Ukraine and Israel. How will the conservative Speaker deal with Democrats? And the U.S. may give $6 billion to Iran, part of a prisoner swap agreement before Hamas killed over 30 Americans in Israel. Experts tell Congress why the Biden administration should keep the money frozen. The suspect in a main shooting is still at large, almost 24 hours after the attack. At least 18 people are dead. NTD's Arian Pazdar has an update and what authorities are saying. You never would think that something like this would happen in Lewiston. A father says he and his son unknowingly avoided an active shooter by skipping bowling practice on Wednesday night. A gunman opened fire at a bowling alley and a restaurant at around 7 p.m. on Wednesday killing at least 18 and injuring many more, putting the closest hospital to the test. We had approximately 100 team members who were off-duty come into the hospital. Law enforcement is currently looking for the main suspect, Robert Cart, who is considered armed and dangerous. He's still on the run almost 24 hours after the attack. There is now arrest warrants for murder uh, for this particular individual, Mr. Cart. Cart is a verified weapons instructor and member of the U.S. Army Reserve. Now, officials say he did report mental health issues in the past, including hearing voices. And officials are also asking people to call 911 for possible sightings of the suspect. But they're advising caution, saying people shouldn't even make eye contact if they see him. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham says this suspect should have raised red flags. So the common theme here is mental health, right? The guy's in the hospital for a couple of weeks. How did the Army Reserve unit not know about this. That's what, I, that's what, how did he stay in the Army Reserve? How did it not get up the chain of command that, you know, this guy's got problems? Meanwhile, the White House on Thursday advocated for stricter gun laws, asking the newly elected House Speaker for support. The House has a new Speaker who, who, who he said, he said he's ready to, to get to work and to find common ground. Now is the time. Now is the time to find common ground. Let's work together to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Newly elected Speaker Mike Johnson on Thursday said he hopes law enforcement can find the suspect as soon as possible. His remarks came before the White House address. This is a dark time in America. We have a, a, a lot of problems, and we're really, really hopeful and prayerful. Prayer is appropriate in a time like this that the evil can end. And Vice President Kamala Harris on Thursday also condemning the senseless violence. Once again, routine gatherings, this time at a bowling alley and a restaurant, have been turned into scenes of horrific carnage. 
She added that she'll keep praying for those who are still injured. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. In other tragic news, at least 27 people have died after Hurricane Otis hit Mexico. The Mexican government says four more people are still missing. Otis is one of the most powerful storms to ever hit the country. It left a trail of devastation across Acapulco, a city of nearly 900,000, flooding streets, ripping roofs off homes and severing communications, road and air access. Acapulco is the biggest city in one of the poorest states in Mexico. The local economy depends heavily on tourism and Otis caused extensive damage to the city's most famous hotels. A new chapter unfolds in the Middle East as Israeli forces report striking 250 Hamas targets in a single day. And Israeli ground forces continue to make their way into the Gaza territory, conducting yet another overnight operation. NTD's Jason Perry has the update and a warning this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. Israeli Defense Forces conducted another ground operation in the northern Gaza Strip on Thursday. This time, they released video of the operation, showing a convoy of armored vehicles firing on multiple Hamas targets before returning to Israel. IDF posted a statement saying the overnight operation was in preparation for the next stages of combat. Also on Thursday, Israeli forces said that in the past 24 hours, Israeli fighter jets had struck over 250 Hamas terror targets in the Gaza Strip. But how do these airstrikes look from further up? Satellite images released by Maxar Technology shows the before and after pictures of the Israeli airstrikes as of October 21st. Almost three weeks ago, on October 7th, Hamas terrorists went on a killing spree, murdering over 1,400 civilians in Israel, which started the war between Israel and Hamas. On Thursday, a first responder visited one of those ransacked communities and described what it was like when he arrived. The room was from the bottom, all the floor was full of blood. The, the, all the walls were full of blood. The ceiling, we are hours and hours and hours here scraping all the evidence and all, everything, whatever is left, to bring it to burial. Based on new intelligence, Israel has now increased the number of hostages taken by Hamas to 224, with the possibility of more. Family members of the hostages held a press conference in Tel Aviv, but people were forced to evacuate due to the sound of sirens and explosions overhead. Civilians are getting caught in the crossfire on both sides of the war. Mahmoud Shamia, along with his wife and three children, have been sheltering at a camp overseen by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, also known as UNRWA. They told us to get out of northern Gaza to protect our lives, and I actually left the place. But explosives are around us here everywhere. Where should we go? On Wednesday evening, a spokesman for the Israeli military responded to UNRWA's claim that due to a fuel shortage, the United Nations mission in Gaza would be forced to stop if Israel did not stop the blockade on Gaza. We responded to UNRWA's claim by referring them to where Hamas, which governs the Gaza Strip, stores fuel, both diesel fuel and uh, other types of uh, and benzene and other types of, uh, of fuel. It's all inside the Gaza Strip, and there's enough for many days for hospitals and water pumps to run. 
only the priorities are different. He went on to say that Hamas keeps the fuel for warfighting capabilities and leaves the citizens without it. Jason Perry, NTD News. President Biden met with newly elected Speaker Mike Johnson today. Johnson's facing his first heavy lift to figure out how to negotiate with the White House on aid to Ukraine and Israel. NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us from Capitol Hill with more on this. In his first day on the job as the newly elected speaker, Johnson met with President Biden along with other members on a bipartisan basis in Congress today, already feeling the pressure about having to deal with Israel aid and Ukraine aid. Now, the big issue here is that the White House had requested in their $106 billion request to combine both Israel and Ukraine aid. So number one, one issue is the fact that Johnson himself doesn't even support Ukraine aid. We saw that from his voting record, but also that members within the Republican Party some of them are unwilling to pass the two simultaneously. Here's what members told us about combining these two pieces of legislation. What's the president's view on how long we're going to be doing this? Uh, this funding will get us uh, close to $200 billion. Um, how are we going to pay for it? That's fine. It's really no problem. Good. We have to help both. These are regional wars that we got to help. Otherwise, it can become a bigger, bigger conflict. We have to stand shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine. There needs to be a level of, of, of scrutiny and an, an assertion that we have a we have a common goal. Israel aid is 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 immediate. Ukraine received already a lot of funding. We need to take care of Israel, uh, and we have American hostages. We have Americans who were killed. So not only is Johnson having to work to unite his conference on this issue, but also he has to face the pressure of having to reach across the aisle and work with Democrats, especially being one of the most conservative members in Congress. And on this point of Israel, there are clearly huge disagreements within the House on Israel. We saw that just yesterday when nine Democrats refused to vote for a condemnation resolution to condemn the Hamas attacks on Israel. And now one of those anti-Israel members, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, is facing the possibility of being censured over her past comments on Israel. That resolution was introduced today by Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She accuses Tlaib of sympathizing with the Hamas terrorist group, and she also accuses her of inciting an insurrection in the Capitol when there was a ceasefire protest here, both inside and outside the halls of Congress with hundreds of people. Tlaib was not inside speaking to protesters, but she was outside. Here's what Green had to say when she introduced this censure resolution, along with one Democrat Jewish congresswoman in her opposition to it. A resolution censuring Representative Rashida Tlaib for anti-Semitic activity, sympathizing with terrorist organizations and leading an insurrection at the United States Capitol complex. Whereas in May 2019, Rashida Tlaib said that she celebrated the Holocaust and felt a calming feeling when thinking about the genocide of millions of Jews. Rich for her to be looking to censure Rashida Tlaib. Uh, uh, the, look, do I agree with everything Rashida says? No, but she's not inciting violence. Um, and that is what the conversation was around Ms. Green. And we know of at least one Democrat congressman who says he's considering actually voting for this censure resolution. So it will be interesting to see how Democrats as a whole vote for it if it does, in fact, come to the floor for a vote. But right now, that's up to Speaker Johnson whether or not he brings it up to the floor. We're told that it could happen sometime next week. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. 
The U.S. could still release $6 billion to Iran, even after Iranian-funded terror group Hamas killed over 30 Americans in Israel. NTD's Jack Bradley has more. The Biden administration is on the brink of giving Iran $6 billion. This is part of a deal in which Iran has released five American prisoners. The U.S. says the Americans were unfairly detained. In return, the U.S. has released five Iranians and has agreed to transfer $6 billion of Iran's restricted cash from South Korea to Qatar. Iran would then be able to use that money, which it currently cannot. The Islamic Republic of Iran has spent more than $20 billion to support foreign terror groups in the Middle East. They don't really care about um, providing for the material needs of the Iranian people. They will always prioritize terror. Uh, and the United States should not aid the regime in this effort. During a congressional hearing, Iran expert Gabriel Neronha said Iran shouldn't be allowed to touch this money, especially after Hamas, which Iran heavily funds, killed over 1,400 people in Israel, including over 30 Americans. The Biden administration stresses that Iran can use the money only for humanitarian purposes, such as buying food and medicine for its people. The U.S. says the Treasury Department will monitor each transaction. So many times in history when Iran has filed paperwork that's fraudulent, front companies, false transactions that have gone to money laundering, that have gone to the IRGC, gone to Assad in Syria, Hulk Bank in Turkey, remember that massive scandal still being prosecuted today. That was all based on humanitarian transactions. During the same hearing, Iran expert Richard Goldberg said that Iran could still use that money for terrorism. Throughout history, Iran has spent billions of dollars meant for humanitarian purposes on terrorism. And it may have access to the $6 billion in Qatar even now. The Biden administration has mentioned a, quote, quiet understanding with Qatar regarding the $6 billion in Iranian funds exchanged in the hostage deal. What does a quiet understanding look like in practice? It means nothing at all, um, because <laughs> a quiet understanding has no legal basis. Um, it does not provide, it does not legally prevent a cutter from distributing those funds to Iran. Iran makes most of its money through oil and gas exports. It uses much of it to fund terrorism through proxy groups such as Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iraqi militias. Iran has also been known to work for crime syndicates and drug cartels. Jack Bradley, NTD News. A man suspected of killing a Maryland judge has now been found dead himself. Local authorities said the man shot and killed Washington County Circuit Judge Andrew Wilkinson just hours after the judge ruled against him in a child custody case. This happened on October 19th. The suspect's body was found in a wooded area during a search for evidence. Officials declined to comment on his cause of death. Coming up in the D.C. election case, why prosecutors want a federal judge to reimpose the gag order on former President Trump. What's California Governor Gavin Newsom up to in China? His Great Wall visit and trip to a company that he awarded a $1.4 billion contract to during the pandemic. The United Auto Workers strike is ending at Ford Assembly Plants after more than 40 days. It follows a tentative contract agreement between the two sides. And a labor union in Los Angeles is accusing hotels of hiring illegal immigrants during a worker strike. We'll have more on the controversy after the break.
Welcome back. Special, special counsel Jack Smith wants former President Trump back under a gag order. The order was lifted in the D.C. election case, and federal prosecutors are saying Trump's taking advantage of it. They're citing Trump's recent post on Truth Social, implying that his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, may have a deal with Smith in exchange for immunity. They say the posts are an attempt to influence and intimidate a foreseeable witness. Last week, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chotkin, who is presiding over the case, temporarily paused her gag order. It was barring Trump from making comments about prosecutors, court staff and potential witnesses. The ruling came as Trump's lawyers have appealed the order. Prosecutors are asking that the restriction be put back in place, arguing that the recent post is the type of commentary that the original order was meant to prohibit. In a historic trip, California's governor visits China's Great Wall and an EV company, the one he purchased masks from in a controversial contract during COVID. We hear more from NTD's David Lamb. Dubbed the Great Wall Climate Dialogue, California Governor Gavin Newsom met with leaders of five Chinese provinces and the U.S. Ambassador to China Thursday and toured the Great Wall of China. At the end of the day, a climate agreement was renewed with Beijing to reduce air pollution and emissions. It also includes promoting the exchange of scientific and technical information through visits and meetings. Congresswoman Michelle Steele stated the Chinese Communist Party is the biggest polluter on earth and that no one should follow their lead. During Newsom's week-long international trip, the Democratic governor also visited electric car maker BYD, getting behind the wheel of a BYD vehicle. California Globe reported this is the company that Newsom awarded over $1.4 billion for masks during the pandemic. Controversy buzzed around the contract in 2020, including rapidly spending taxpayer funds and lawmakers questioning the governor's authority. A portion of the masks were initially shipped before fully receiving health certification. And on Wednesday, Chinese officials reportedly blocked American media from attending the surprise meeting with China leader and CCP head Xi Jinping, while allowing Chinese reporters inside. Newsom and Xi's meeting comes amid tense U.S.-China relations after Newsom said they talked about fentanyl, climate issues, and economics. David Lamb, Entity News, California. Why is California aligning itself with China and how deep is the partnership? To explore it, we spoke with Lily Tang Williams, a congressional candidate in New Hampshire and a survivor of Mao's Cultural Revolution. Lily Tang Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Lily, to begin, California Governor Gavin Newsom's China trip has been making a lot of headlines. Now, what's your understanding of Western leaders' notion of cooperating with China on the climate while at the same time saying that China is committing genocide in the Xinjiang region? How does this work? Well, I... I feel kind of, uh, as only congressional candidate born and raised in China, I feel like our politicians really don't understand China. I mean, do they do they know China is the largest polluter in the world? And there was a famous documentary, Under the Doom, and the famous documentary was seen by hundreds of millions of people, Chinese all over the world, and they banned that uh, um, documentary on pollution. 
And if they don't um, care about human rights in China, how will they care about pollution and climate change? This is, a, I think this is a false strategy for our leaders to think. We can trust CCP on climate cooperation, but at the same time, you know, use taxpayers' money to give Chinese companies and dollars to come to United States to build factories and batteries and build an EV manufacturing plant. I think that's just like a benefit CCP instead of you know benefits America. And on that note, Newsom was telling an audience there that China has a reliable partner in California, while saying not a reliable partner in terms of the United States. Why would he do that? Separate the state of California from the rest. What's in it for California? Well, that, uh, you know, he has a history um, going back and um, have a relationship with China. And California ideology, of course, on climate change and lots of government policies are kind of in line with the uh, communist China's. You know, when, when you talk about, uh, you know, big government and and uh, talk about climate change ideology, equity, and but not really pay attention to uh, regular Americans' needs. Like, a, he, like a, for example, gov governor wants to ban gas cars by 2035 in California. How is that going to affect the California business people's lives and regular taxpayers' lives? Uh, affect the, its economy? So I, I don't think lots of California people, if they know the truth, will support what he's doing. And the China has a controlling 80% of world battery industry. So our green new energy dollars are going to Chinese companies at the same time that uh, we're not secure our borders, we're not energy independent. I think we should actually um, decouple from China if we don't rely on China and we have a lot more strength to call out their human rights abuses. What they're doing in Xinjiang, what they're doing to Falun Gong practitioners, and, and uh, frankly, what they're doing to lots of Chinese regular people. And uh, we got to separate Chinese people from the Chinese totalitarian government and the call out their human rights abuses. That should be the moral role for United States to play instead of rely on China for climate change cooperation and give them more our tax dollars. It's just, to me, a Democrat party have really adopted the wrong policy when it comes to China. And on that note, in your view, how has the Chinese Communist Party pulled in people like Newsom and other politicians? Through money, through collections, and through infiltration. And uh, of course, Newsom have given lots of money already and to Chinese uh, um, company BYD in California, even during pandemic. You know, um, give $1 billion to the company um, to buy masks with our bidding process. And now allow Chinese company to come to New uh, California to bid on infrastructure. And uh, the Chinese companies are in Democrat-controlled state, Michigan, Illinois, to build battery factories, even though those Chinese companies are all CCP companies. People got to understand there's no true private big companies in China. They're all controlled by one-party dictatorship. Some are working on military projects. So this kind of corruption is dangerous to our national security. 
And if we look at history, it seems, especially the U.S. and the West, has a history of using diplomacy to try and change the Chinese Communist Party. Is that the right approach? How should we be approaching the Chinese regime? Well, United States people for a while have this uh, romance about Middle Kingdom and think that through free trade, we will change China. But if you look at today, China is going backwards without fundamentally change the one-party dictatorship political system, China's economical growth cannot be sustained. Look at what they're doing to human rights abuses and to even affect the U.S. companies and businesses in China. And I think Xi Jinping is actually put China's like a national security, stability, political agendas above China's economy. That's why, you know, 80% of foreign companies and investment have already left China because it's a crazy zero COVID lockdown policies. So we need to decouple from China and call out their human rights abuses and call out their pollution records instead of relying on them and beg them to corrupt with us. It's just absolutely wrong policy at the federal level and the state level, too. Well, Lily Tang Williams, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. A major breakthrough in the United Auto Workers strike. Ford employees are set to head back to work after walking off the job 41 days ago. This after the Auto Workers Union said Wednesday that it's reached a tentative contract agreement with Ford. We spoke with NTD business host Don Ma for details. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Yeah, great to be with you, Tiffany. To begin, tell us more about this deal that the two sides agreed to. Yeah, uh, so first of all, the, the total economic loss here from the auto workers' strike has reached over $9 billion. So, you know, of course it makes sense when 16,000 strikers uh, going back to the job in a few days. Uh, everyone's happy here. Uh, it's great news uh, for Sean Fain, for the workers, for the automaker as well. So now this tentative deal uh, is for the next four and a half years. It includes a 25% wage hike over this period. And it starts with an upfront increase of 11% uh, plus cost of living raises. That's going to put the pay increase over 30% uh, to above $40 per hour for top-scale assembly plant workers, uh, by the end of the contract, that is. And UAW's vice president said uh, temporary workers will get more in wage increases than they have over the past 22 years combined. Temporary workers will also get raises uh, of over 150%, and retirees going to get annual bonuses as well. So, you know, this seems like a record-setting agreement here for the UAW. A lot of raises right there, but what has been the reactions to this deal so far? So this tentative deal uh, still needs to be approved and ratified by uh, 57,000 union members at the company at Ford. Uh, but it seems like the UAW president, Sean Fain, he's pretty satisfied uh, with this deal. Uh, he said this deal is actually record-breaking. And like I said before, a lot of people are happy with this deal. Uh, investors are happy too. 
Ford stock was up a few percent after the deal was announced. President Biden as well also commented. Uh, he said he applauds the UAW and Ford for coming together in negotiations. Um, as well, General Motors and Stellantis both provided statements. Uh, they both said that uh, they're working hard with the UAW to reach a tentative agreement as soon as possible. And Ford as well said in a statement that uh, they're pleased to have reached uh, a tentative agreement. Mm, and what is next for the UAW? Now, Ford uh, was just the first step uh, of the three Detroit automakers uh, to reach a settlement. So there's still some work left to do. The UAW have to now turn its attention to talks with uh, General Motors and Stellantis. But, you know, this deal with Ford could help set a template uh, for settlements with the other two car makers. These two previously have offered around a 23% wage increase. So, you know, we'll see if they're willing to increase that number by just a little bit more. Talks uh, should fall in line fairly quickly because all three were within a narrow gap of each other. Um, and typically during past auto strikes, a UAW deal with one automaker has led to to the other companies matching it. But, you know, there are still questions as to whether Sean Fain has asked for too much here. The Detroit automakers are arguing that uh, the UAW's demands will actually significantly raise costs. So we'll see here. Well, Donma, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Controversy in Los Angeles. A labor union is accusing hotels of hiring illegal immigrants amidst a worker strike. NTD's Stephanie Sakal reports. The unit here, Local 11 Union, claims that there's a, quote, exploitation of unhoused refugees. People from a skid row shelter in Los Angeles have reportedly been hired to work in city hotels, while over 15,000 hotel workers have been on a strike since July. The striking workers are demanding better wages and working conditions. It's outrageous that Santa Monica, Santa Monica hotels may have resorted to exploiting the desperation of recent immigrants. At the same time, their current employees, many of whom also immigrated to this country, fight for living wages and safe working conditions. Hotels like Four Points by Sheraton, Limeridian Delfina Santa Monica, and the Holiday Inn LAX are facing these accusations. A young man who came from Venezuela to seek a better quality of life found himself with heavy workloads and long hours. I didn't even know which agency was hiring, how much I was going to earn, how many hours I was going to work, much less my rights as a worker. Here I worked without breaks, without permission to eat, doing the work of three or four people. I then went to work at another hotel where they hired me to wash dishes, but they always made me clean bathrooms during my work shift, something I felt violated hygiene protocols. At the end of my job, I received a check without any information on how much I earned per hour. This has launched an investigation into working conditions for illegal immigrants hired at hotels. We're going to make sure that this is investigated thoroughly. Uh, it will be a fair and impartial investigation, but we want to make sure that those that are vulnerable are being provided the support that the laws of this country provide. Some are reportedly asylum seekers with temporary protected status and work permits, but unions condemn this practice. Behind me is the Holiday Inn Hotel near LAX, one of the many hotels involved in the scandal. 
The Los Angeles City Council is considering suing Texas over busing migrants to the city. Stephanie Sikal, NTD News, Los Angeles. Coming up, immigrants illegally crossing into Texas will need to beware. A new law could mean jail time and a return to Mexico. With so much attention on presidential candidates, how important are state and local elections? A journalist tells us that state governments can prevent tyranny from crossing state lines. And a wave continues as another Republican-led state legislature is ordered to redraw its congressional map. How many new districts did the judge say are needed to restore racial equality? That's coming up. Texas police may soon be arresting illegal immigrants. State lawmakers are trying to make it a state-level crime to enter the country from Mexico. This grants local police agencies the power to arrest and jail illegal immigrants. It also allows authorities to order them back to Mexico. It's part of Governor Greg Abbott's multi-billion dollar border security program known as Operation Lone Star. And it's a big challenge to federal authority over immigration which could lead to a fight in the U.S. Supreme Court. Abbott's program also supports constructing barriers near the border. The Texas House also approved an additional $1.5 billion for that effort. The new law will go back to the state Senate and then head to Abbott's desk for his signature. Much of the attention in the 2024 race has been on the presidential candidates. So how important are state and local elections? Joining us now is an award-winning journalist who explains how state elections can nullify tyranny at the state line. Alex Newman, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Alex, to begin, the 2024 election cycle is ramping up. There's a lot of focus on the presidential election. But what about the state and local elections? What's the importance there? Yeah, I, I would argue that state and local elections are almost as important as the presidential election, because really the, the vast majority of the laws and the policies that are going to affect you on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of your family, your property, your business, uh, these are coming from the state and local level. I, I don't want to downplay the importance of the presidential election, but the reality is most of us are not going to affect the presidential election, even if we're influential and we can influence hundreds or thousands the reality is that changing the outcome there is very difficult. But at the local level, that's not true. And as we saw during the pandemic, uh, you know, here in my state of Florida, uh, our state, our local and our county governments, in many cases, actively protected the freedoms of the people in our communities, whereas uh, the federal government was pestering them to, to adopt these policies. So it really it can have a huge, huge impact and it can make a huge difference in the preservation of your freedom and your rights and all the rest of it. So I do encourage people to really pay attention to what's happening at the local and the state level. It's just as important, if not more. And Alex, I want to zoom in on that. You used that example of Florida and the pandemic in your article titled State Elections Nullifying Tyranny at the State Line. How does that fit in with the message from the Founding Fathers? Well, the Founding Fathers, and unfortunately this has been lost to history, very few Americans even know this, they don't read these documents anymore, but the Founding Fathers viewed uh, what's called nullification or the doctrine of interposition as, uh, to quote Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, the father of our Constitution, the rightful remedy 
for dealing with uh, federal usurpations of power. So a quick constitutional lesson, the states and the people came together, they created the federal government through the Constitution. The Constitution authorizes the federal government to exist. It also lists the powers that the federal government has been given by the states and by the people who ultimately retained ultimate sovereignty. Now, that list is mostly outlined in Article 1, Section 8. You can run a post office, you can have a navy, you can uh, declare war. I mean, so they have uh, some sig significant powers. But everything else was reserved to the states or to the people, as they actually said explicitly in the 10th Amendment. And so when the federal government goes beyond the powers that have been delegated to it, uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson was the key author of the Declaration of Independence, James Madison, the key author of the Constitution. They both said the correct response here, the rightful remedy is for state governments to say, no, that's not going to happen. And they actually put that into practice. So uh, the, the very first time we had this in our country, shortly after the Constitution was adopted, Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Acts. Uh, these were obviously unconstitutional. They purported to regulate speech and things like this. Well, uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison wrote the Virginia and the Kentucky resolutions. I encourage folks to read them because what they essentially said is that here in Virginia, here in Kentucky, we are not going to obey those unconstitutional laws. In fact, we're going to protect our citizens from this usurpation of power. Uh, very effective. This was used during the Civil War with slavery to, to protect uh, individuals who ran away from slavery in the northern states. has a long history in our country, and uh, unfortunately, very few Americans know this history. Hmm. And it seems it's not just our own federal government. You also note the United Nations and the World Health Organization. How could these institutions influence the American way of life if states don't push back? Yeah, and, and what's really encouraging to me is the states are pushing back, right? So the UN, uh, of course, as this happens with all governments, it always wants to accumulate more and more power. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see the global bureaucrats at the UN, the global bureaucrats at the World Health Organization trying to usurp more and more power. This is just natural. It's what governments and what would-be governments around the world and throughout history have done. And yet, very thankfully, here in, in our states, we have a lot of significant efforts to push back. Uh, about a decade ago, the state of Alabama, to give you one clear example, unanimously Every Republican, every Democrat in the House and Senate in the state of Alabama passed a nullification measure declaring that Agenda 21, the UN's agenda for the 21st century, was null and void within Alabama. They prohibited any state or local or county government agency or employee from participating in the enforcement or the imposition of this Agenda 21. And again, this passed unanimously. 100% support in the legislature. Right now, uh, the, the contemporary context, we have the World Health Organization uh, right now trying to usurp vast new powers over our lives, over our health care, over our uh, uh, companies. And uh, one uh, individual that I spoke with on this topic, uh, Representative Josiah Magnuson, he's got a bill in the South Carolina legislature that would nullify the World Health Organization's power grabs. It would declare that no agency, no employee, no resource of the state or any subdivision thereof can participate in the enforcement of any mandate, directive, recommendation coming out of the World Health Organization. This is something that states all across the country can do. It's something that I believe and the founding fathers would have said they should do, and it's a, a very effective effective way of putting the federal government back in its constitutional box without even having to go through uh, the process of a federal election or switching out uh, power in Congress or at the executive branch. And how much of this, the American way of life, co goes back to our education and our understanding of the Constitution? 
Yeah, I, I believe the reason we have so much ignorance in our country right now is as a direct result of the government education system. Uh, it wasn't an accident that they stopped teaching our children about the Constitution. It wasn't an accident that they stopped teaching children in America about the heritage of the United States of America. And, you know, th this doctrine of nullification, of interposition, it's actually a historic doctrine that has existed for thousands of years. Uh, you know, it wasn't the founding fathers who came up with this idea. Uh, if you go back to the Magna Carta, the, the noblemen in the Britain actually held the king at sword point and told him, look, you are going to respect our rights or you're going to be removed. Uh, and, and so here you had the lower magistrate interposing between the people and the higher magistrate. So this is inextricably intertwined with our heritage as Americans. Uh, it was viewed by many, even the federal supremacists among our founding fathers. Alexander Hamilton said the rightful uh, response to these federal usurpations is for states to refuse to cooperate with the officers of the union. This should be common knowledge among Americans. This is something that should be taught in every grade school in this country. But as the federal government unconstitutionally took more and more control over our education system, more and more of these historic truths have been removed from the curriculum and more and more fake history has been put in there. And we see the consequences of that all around us. We have children who want to burn down our country. We have children who don't know the first thing about how our federal government is supposed to operate. And I believe this is one of the most significant existential threats facing our nation today. A lot at stake here for sure. Well, Alex Newman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Georgia's state lawmakers are going back to the drawing board after a federal judge ordered them to redraw a congressional district map. Judge Steve Jones ruled today that some of the districts were racially discriminatory and ordered the state to draw additional black-majority congressional districts. Two in Georgia's 56-member state Senate and five in its 180-member state House. Georgia's Republican Majority General Assembly and the governor have until December 8th to make the changes. Governor Brian Kemp called a special session to begin on November 29th to redraw the districts. The Georgia case is yet another in a wave of litigation after the U.S. Supreme Court earlier this year rejected a challenge to the Voting Rights Act by Alabama. Coming up, what prompted the NCAA to investigate Michigan's football program for alleged sign-stealing violations? How it all started? And Halloween is just around the corner. We'll have more on the safest cities for trick-or-treating after the break. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with what started the NCAA's probe into whether Michigan football illegally scouted other teams' play calls. That's right, Tiff. The NCAA's investigation of the University of Michigan's alleged sign-stealing scheme was started by evidence provided by an outside investigative firm, according to the Washington Post. The evidence included computer drives with documents and videos that were allegedly maintained by some Michigan coaches. Now, sign stealing itself is actually not against the rules, but in-person scouting, as well as video recording coaches during games of future opponents is prohibited. Now, the all-time important question of who or what school hired this firm has yet to be answered. Michigan, meanwhile, has suspended football assistant Connor Stallions, who's reportedly at the heart of the NCAA's investigation. Now, according to ESPN, 12 of the 13 other Big Ten schools 
have records of Stallions purchasing a ticket there. Head coach Jim Harbaugh, meanwhile, denied illegally stealing signs, according to a statement last week. And in baseball news, Houston Astros manager Dusty Baker is calling it a career. The 74-year-old retires just days after his team came within one win of their third straight AL pennant. Now, the Astros were his fifth different team, dating all the way back to 1993 when he started with the San Francisco Giants. The three-time manager of the year is the only one ever to lead five different teams to division titles. He retires with the seventh most wins all time. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has a doubleheader planned. First, Eastern Powers Philadelphia and Milwaukee square off, followed by the LA Lakers hosting Phoenix out west. And on the ice, 11 games are scheduled featuring the 2022 Stanley Cup champion Colorado Avalanche, who were off to a 6-0 start. They play at Pittsburgh. And finally, in the NFL, the Buffalo Bills host the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on Amazon Prime's Thursday Night Football. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. With Halloween approaching, it's important to know safe and kid-friendly spots for trick-or-treating and where to see some of the most creative jack-o'-lanterns. NTD's Christina Corona has more from the Pumpkin Patch. Halloween is the holiday of thrills and chills, but to celebrate the spooky season without any real scares, ensuring safety during trick-or-treating is absolutely essential. Chamberofcommerce.org ranked the safest U.S. cities to trick-or-treat based on factors such as crime rates, pedestrian safety, and law enforcement presence. The top five safest cities to trick-or-treat in the U.S. are Naperville, Illinois, Gilbert, Arizona, Frisco, Texas, Sugarland, Texas, and Cary, North Carolina. They analyzed data from over 300 U.S. cities using five key metrics, pedestrian fatalities, violent crime, property crime, registered sex offenders and law enforcement staff standardized to a per 10,000 residence rate and to celebrate the spooky season Knights of the Jack in the Santa Monica Mountains draws crowds with its elaborately carved and illuminated Halloween pumpkins from creative portraits of Hollywood stars to dinosaurs aliens and even Disney princesses pumpkin carvings yeah, the, uh, the trail is amazing. The artistry, the creativity, it's uh, really a sight to see. And I think that uh, this, along with all of Halloween, it really lets everybody be a kid. The kids love it, the adults love it. It's a lot of fun. I really like the Knights of the Jack because it was really interesting to see all the talented artists around here and like things that you would never expect to be done on a pumpkin of all things. Um, so yeah, I just thought it was really cool to see all the, all the art that they can make through this. The event uses between four and 5,000 pumpkins for the exhibit, and it takes around 25 minutes to traverse the course. Ultimately, everything that's on the trail is made of jack-o'-lanterns. So whether you're walking through the dinosaur land through the Jurassic period, and you're looking at a triceratops or a T-Rex, they're all made from jack-o'-lanterns. And that's everything out on the trail. So stay safe on Halloween and don't forget Knights of the Jack Halloween display runs until November 1st. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.